Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that as your children we can proclaim it is well with our souls. Father, we look forward to that day when you return again. And until then, Lord, we pray that we would be a people that are prepared and ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you could tell from uh, the selection of songs that Kathy picked, the theme today is the second coming. We are in this series through the Gospel of Mark, and today we come to chapter 13. We're calling today uh, the theme of our message, He is in Control. In Control. And we're going to be looking at this chapter 13, and I'll just warn you that it's a lengthy chapter, and we're taking a flyover view, if you will, of it, all right? A, a speed view over chapter 13. Uh, so we're not going to get super in-depth, but we're going to see some practical truths from chapter 13 that are for us today as God's people looking to the future. Well, back in May of 2021, so just about a year ago, the U.S. earthquake early warning system uh, decided that they could begin to issue earthquake alerts to cell phone users all along the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington. And they uh, released something called the MyShake app. It's uh, an early warning system that aims to let people know about incoming shaking so that they can have at least a, a few seconds to find a safe spot to ride out the earthquake. And uh, the uh, alert system is successful because communications like cell phones and things like that are so much faster now, faster than the speed of the shaking waves that are coming, moving through the ground. And so that earthquake early warning system could give folks like us here in the Pacific Northwest as much as 80 seconds of early warning ahead of a, a big earthquake that might be coming along the, the Cascadia subduction zone. Well, this early warning system got a bit of a test run in Los Angeles County last September when a magnitude 8.5 earthquake hit the South El Monte area. And that triggered an alert which was sent out across that system to 2.2 million mobile device users. That's pretty cool, isn't it? An early warning system that lets us know to get ready for un incoming uh, emergencies, incoming earthquakes. Well, I was thinking about that as I read about that, and I thought, you know what? The Bible is an early warning system, isn't it? It's getting us ready, warning us for the devastating judgment that will at one point in time jolt this entire world. And so those who listen to the words of Jesus can take shelter before the disaster strikes because Jesus is in control. Amen? He's in control. So today our journey through the Gospel of Mark brings us to chapter 13. And this chapter lays out a theme that, let's be honest, is often debated among Christians, more than perhaps anything else in the church world at large. The topic of the end of days, or the end of the age, or judgment day, or the day of the Lord, or how to interpret the book of Revelation, or any other term you want to throw in there. What happens at the end of time. It's an oft-debated controversy because in Scripture we get snapshots and previews of the end time in different Bible passages. But let's face it, let's be honest, we want to know everything, don't we? Don't 
Don't you want to know everything? We want to see the whole picture. But guess what? We don't get the whole picture. But some folks think and believe that they've got the whole picture figured out. And they'll sell you their book if you log on to their website and give them $19.95. As though any person would have the full picture. And so this creates some tension. Mark 13 is one of those snapshots that fuels our, our wonder, our interest about the end of time and what will happen and just when it might happen that the end might come. The chapter is a bit complicated. In, in Mark 13, about half the time, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about an event that's going to happen in about 40 years from the day that he talks to them here in Mark 13. And then the other half of the chapter or so, Jesus is speaking about the day of the Lord, which he clearly says so much about. And he tells us it's unknown and it's not to be shared. In fact, Jesus says he doesn't even know when it might be. And so if not handled carefully, the, the complex nature of chapter 13 can give room for a lot of controversy, a lot of debate, which is not where the Lord wants his people to be. Now, before we get too far into chapter 13, I want to mention just a few things about Bible prophecy. If we think that Bible prophecy is only about predicting the future, then we're going to miss a lot of what God does with prophecies. There certainly is an element of predicting the future, but that's not all that biblical prophecy is about. Many times, the Bible prophecies have at least three points of truth. I want you to think of it as kind of like a stone skipping across the water. In three distinct places it hits, and those ripples come out. But the ripples also overlap, don't they? And so they're intertwined with one another. And so let's think about the three ways that biblical prophecy can impact us. First of all, biblical prophecy almost always has a meaning for the people who are literally, physically hearing or reading the message for the very first time. So the people that were on the spot, in this case with Jesus, hearing him speak these words that Mark records in chapter 13. Or in the Old Testament, those Old Testament people that were the first ones to receive the words of the prophets. They're on the spot and the message is for them. That's true here in Mark 13. In verse 10, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, this generation, speaking to those guys that were right there with him, will not pass away until all these things take place. And so it had an impact for them in the immediate time. But second, biblical prophecy often has a meaning for a future date past the lives of those people who first received the message. There is a truth for a future generation. That's also true here in Mark 13. Jesus says in verse 20, 24, indicating a, a future event, he says, in those days. And in verse 26, he says, at that time. And he's talking about something in the distant future. And then third, biblical prophecy also has a ring of truth for the, what we might call the end times or the last days. Scholars call this the eschatological meaning. That's a big fancy word that Bible scholars use. And all it means is relating to the time of the end, eschatological. And that is also a part of Mark 13. Jesus says in verse 
32, and he's talking about himself. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And then in verse 33, you, speaking to the disciples, you do not know when that time will come. And so now he's talking about that very far off time. So that's important for us to know as, as we talk about biblical prophecy. And then there are two extremes, extremes that I want us to make sure we avoid as we talk about the end times. And the first one is sensationalizing. For some, the tendency is to obsess about biblical prophecy by trying to fit in every news headline into a prophetic timeline. Oh my goodness, there's a war going on in Ukraine. How does that fit in to the end times? We do all kinds of things like that. Paul cautions Christians against that kind of thinking. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he writes, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, he wanted the early Christians not to be alarmed when people started talking in this sensational way. And the same is true of us today, folks. I mentioned earlier, people writing novel series, people putting out movies, people uh, teaching uh, on the internet uh, or on the television or on the radio. And if you get the idea that somebody is sensationalizing something about the end times, I hope that a red flag will start waving in your mind as you say, I need to be careful about this. So that's the first temptation. The first extreme is sensationalizing the end times. But then the other extreme is this, trivializing it. Trivializing it. Others, some folks, rarely talk about the return of Christ at all. And some even roll their eyes when you start talking about the end of, of times. Listen to this, this uh, warning from the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3. Peter writes, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so when we trivialize the second coming, the end of times, when we don't focus on it or think about it or talk about it at all, we're, we're like these people who are just kind of saying, oh, things are just going to cruise along the way they always have been. And so we want to avoid those extremes. And so as we explore Jesus' teaching in Mark 13 today, we, I want to consider it from three distinct periods of time. And as we look at those time periods, we also want to consider how those truths impact us today in 21st century Lane County, Oregon as Christians living 2,000 plus years beyond the day that Jesus spoke these words directly to his disciples and then Mark recorded them in chapter 13. So let's begin with the first time period that Jesus spoke about, what we are calling the present days. The present days, and that's gonna, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 of Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read that for you. Beginning in verse 1, and as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's a fairly lengthy passage, and that's only the first part of chapter 13. But let's kind of set the stage as we've worked our way through the book of Mark. We've been focusing on this last week of Jesus' life, and he has been in and out of the temple in Jerusalem, hasn't he? And he's been healing, and he's been causing controversy by overthrowing the uh, tables of the money changers, and he's been in debates, and the religious leaders have sought to trap him in various ways. All of that has taken place in the confines of the temple courts. And now, Jesus comes out of the temple. This is the last time that he will be in the temple. He's leaving the temple with his disciples. And he won't go back to that temple. He will not go back there. And as they leave, one of the disciples says, Lord, look at that glorious building. That wonderful temple rising up above the beautiful city of Jerusalem with the gold. It's a gorgeous building. Look at that, Lord. Isn't it beautiful? And Jesus makes a shocking, a shocking statement. See that building, guy? See all those buildings, guys? There will not be one stone unturned. Whoa, what are you talking about, Jesus? And they leave the city, and they go up to the Mount of Olives, where they can sit on the mount, and they can look across, and they have a bird's-eye view of the temple. And Jesus begins to teach them. And the guys, they're like, Jesus, just the four of us, give us the inside scoop. Come on, Jesus. Jesus doesn't give them the inside scoop, though, does he? He takes them in a different direction altogether. Jesus begins to speak to events in the disciples' lifetime. He speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem. We're going to get to that in a moment. And his disciples, of course, are full of questions. They want to know how how that's going to happen, when that's going to happen. Just like we want to know how and when, right? How's, how are all these things going to be fulfilled, Lord? Part of the prophecy that Jesus lays out is that life will become difficult, very difficult. 
for not just these 12, but for all of the believers. And he tells the disciples in verse 9, you need to be on guard. Be on guard, guys. You're going to be in big trouble. You're going to be handed over to councils and arrested and brought to trial. People are going to harm you because you are my followers. I want you to know that. They ask about when the end's coming, and Jesus says, I want you to know the end is coming for you, and it might not be very pretty. And we know that these present-day events, we're talking about the present day of the disciples right now, actually took place for some of them not very long after Jesus was gone. In Acts 4, we read about how Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin and they were put on trial. And then the apostles are arrested and they're put in jail in Acts 5. And then Stephen, Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian age, is stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Believers are driven from their homes and dragged to prison in Acts chapter 8. And Christians begin to leave the city of Jerusalem because the persecution is getting heavier and heavier. In James, James, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, James is killed in Acts chapter 12, the first apostle to die. And then Peter was thrown into prison again around that same time. And so Jesus knows that all this will happen. All this will happen to his followers. And he wants them to be prepared as well as they can be. And so he tells them that through these difficult circumstances, he doesn't say he's going to take the hardship away, does he? He says, through the difficult circumstances, you will be my witnesses. He tells them that they don't need to worry They don't need to worry about what they're going to say or how they're going to say it because the Holy Spirit will be their counselor and their helper and power in the trying days. He promises that there in verse 11. What does this mean for us as we talk about the present day, our present day? Friends, we likewise can be comforted and strengthened in our present days. Christ followers today must know that when difficult times come, and they will, if you haven't had them already, they're coming. When difficult times come, when our faith is tested, when we are stretched thin, that we too have power and assurance and strength from our faith in Jesus and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit enables us to endure these present days so that in the end, we will be delivered. The Holy Spirit encourages us to be faithful and to stick with it, which leads to our ultimate salvation. I want to read verse 13 again for you. Jesus says to the disciples, you will be hated for my name's sake, but... It's a big word, isn't it? But here's the other side of the coin. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, I love how the uh, contemporary English translation, the message, puts it. Stay with it. That's what is required. Stay with it to the end. You won't be sorry. You'll be saved. Isn't that a great message? 
you will be saved. The one who stays with it will be saved. That's not a maybe. That's not a might. But it is a promise of our Lord because he is in control of our present days, just like he was for the disciples in the first century. What a wonderful promise to rest in. Hang in there, because better times are coming. Isn't that a great message in the, the, the time that we live in? We've been through a pandemic. There's a war going on in Ukraine. There's all kinds of persecution around the world. There's all kinds of stuff, all kinds of garbage, hardship. We could get all alarmed, or we can hang in there. We can stay with it because the promise of what is to come is so much better than anything this life has to offer. Jesus is with us as we endure in these present days. Now, let's turn to the next period of time. That's what we're calling, we're calling it the future days, all right? We had the present days. Now we're talking about the future days. I'm going to read another fairly lengthy passage here, Mark 13, verses 14 through 23. Jesus continues his conversation, his instruction, his teaching to the disciples on the Mount of Olives as they're looking across at the city of Jerusalem. Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house or take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it not, might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And so in this next part of our text, Jesus talks to the guys, and he says, guys, be ready. Be on guard. I'm telling all of you this stuff ahead of time so that you'll be prepared. And he begins to speak to some events that are much later. Or in some cases, even after some of the disciples' lifetime. But not all of them. And these events center around a terrible attack that took place in 70 AD in the city of Jerusalem. This is the event that Jesus speaks most about in this chapter. Jesus says, all the way back in verse 2, remember he said when the stones of the temple in Jerusalem would be torn down and thrown down? And then he begins to describe those days as being filled with persecution. And he talks about false saviors grabbing the attention of the crowds and wars and earthquakes and famines and betrayal in families and quite a bit of death. It's not a pretty picture that Jesus paints here. And what Jesus happened 
happened all around that period of time, around 70 AD, about 40 years after the life of Jesus. The Roman army, the legions of Rome, descend upon Jerusalem. They're under the command of General Titus, who hates the Jews, and he's been sent there to get rid of these pesky Jews that have been a thorn in the flesh of the Roman Empire for far too long. And they lay siege around the city. So can you imagine as you see these massive armies coming? If you're a Christian, what do you do? You get out of Dodge. Because soon that siege encircles the city. And there's no food coming in. And no food going out. And they're able to stop the aqueduct that brings water into the city. And there's no water coming in and coming out. And there's famine, and there's pestilence within the city. Disease is rampant. It's a horrible, horrible time. Some of the people even turn on one another, killing one another. It's a terrible time to be in the city of Jerusalem. And then when the siege is over, the armies come upon the city of Jerusalem. And they come with their swords and they come with their torches and they burn and they kill and they pillage and they rape and it's an ugly, ugly time. This is a historical period that we know actually quite a bit about because we have some documentation outside of Scripture that gives us a very clear picture of what happened. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He was a Jew. But he actually worked for the Romans. He had switched sides. And he works for the Romans and he writes the history of this period of time. So in other words, he was an eyewitness. He was on the scene. And although he was a Jew, he didn't perish because he was on the side of the Romans. And I want you to listen to just a little bit of what he wrote. So this is from his, uh, his writing, The Wars of the Jews, book 6, chapter 8. Josephus says, But when they, the Romans, went in numbers into the lanes of the city with their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses, whither the Jews were fled and burnt every soul in them and laid waste a great many of the rest. And when they were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men. And the upper rooms were full of dead corpses, that is, of such as died by the famine. Then they stood in horror at this sight, and they went out without touching anything. But although they had this commiseration for such as were destroyed in that manner, yet they had not the same for those that were still alive, but they ran everyone through whom they met and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies and made the whole city the whole city run with blood to such a degree that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with the blood of the people. And truly so it happened, though, that though the slayers left off at the evening, yet did the fire engulf and greatly prevail in the night all that was burning. And this came the eighth day of the month of Elul upon Jerusalem. So you see the picture there. It's a horrid picture. So we understand from this eyewitness account that Rome surrounded the city and then they came in and they came in to finish the job. But when they got in, they were shocked at how many people were already dead from the famine. No water, no food. 
And those that did not starve to death, those that were still alive, were killed by the Roman soldiers. I want to make sure you caught that picture that there was so much blood, so much blood flowing that it actually put out some of the fires. And eventually, much of the whole city was either destroyed or burned down, including the glorious temple, which still has not been rebuilt to this day. But because of persecution that had come earlier, because they saw those armies coming, most of the Christians had left. They'd gone up into the hills. They'd scattered. And they were safe because of that attack. Now I want to read one more passage from Josephus' history that illustrates, I want you to just see how widespread this was. This comes from the next chapter, chapter 9. He says, Now the number of those that were carried captive during this whole war was collected to be 97,000. As was the number of those that perished during the whole siege, 1,100,000. The greatest part of whom were indeed of the same nation, the citizens of Jerusalem, but not belonging to the city itself, for they were come up from all the country to the feast of unleavened bread and were on sudden shut up by the army, which at the very first occasion so great a distress among them that there came a pestilential destruction upon them. And soon afterwards a famine has destroyed them more suddenly. And so we get the picture here. The city was filled with people. It was Passover time. They had come up. The Jews knew that. They knew that all, or the Romans knew that all the Jews made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. What better time to lay siege and to capture more people and to kill more people. So just so you know, 1,000 times 1,100 is 1.1 million people. Josephus said died. 1.1 million people. Then he said 97,000 Jews were taken into captivity. It's astounding to think of that much death, isn't it? Let, Let me just put that in perspective for you. That would be like every single man, woman, and child from Eugene, where we are, all the way up to Salem. Every single man, woman, and child being killed. And then, if you live in Springfield, you get off the hook, all right? The entire city of Springfield and its surrounding areas carried off into slavery. You get that picture? Everybody you know in this area dead or carried off into slavery. Jesus knew that this would happen. He knew it. And he wanted his followers To flee. We see that in verse 14. Jesus knows the death and destruction is coming, and he tells them to leave and not be caught up in those days that are unequaled. He wants them to be as prepared as they can be and commands them once again in verse 23 be on guard. Be on guard. Friends, Jesus knew the destruction was coming in the future days because. He is in control. And let's make this practical for us now, okay? The same is true for us. Though he does not promise to stop the destruction or the COVID or the wars or the economic crises or whatever else you want to put in your list, he doesn't promise to stop any of that. 
any of the hardship or the difficulty, but he does promise this, to provide a way of escape if we endure. And that truth is for us today as well. In times of history, when the days are unequal in violence or death or sickness or hardship, when our faith is tested, when we're stretched thin, we have the power and we have the assurance and we have the strength from our faith in Jesus because of the presence of his Holy Spirit that lives in his children. The Holy Spirit enables us to endure through our future days, no matter how bleak they may be, through sickness, through hardship, through broken relationships, we can endure, not because we're so strong, not because we can just gut it out, but because if we belong to Jesus, his Holy Spirit is here to do what we cannot do on our own. The Holy Spirit encourages us to be faithful, to stick with it, which leads to our ultimate salvation. That is the wonderful promise of Jesus. He is in control, in control of our present days, in control of our future days, no matter what they might be. And most importantly, he is in control of, number three, the last days. The last days. This section comes from Mark 24 through 37. I'm not going to take time to read that entire passage. It's another lengthy passage. But I want you to see that in the text that Jesus does prophesy and he does speak to events after the disciples' lifetime and after the events of 70 AD, which we are calling the last days. And in the scriptures, we have numerous snapshots, if you will, of the end of times. You can look in the Old Testament in books like Isaiah and Daniel, the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And these are like previews of the coming attractions. If you ever go to the movies, you know, they show those previews. They give you snippets of what's to come, but you don't get the whole story. And that's kind of what the Bible does with the end of times. We get pictures snapshots, previews, but we don't get everything that we like. Not the whole picture. And these looks in on the end of the world show it to be a pretty terrible time for people, for governments, for cities, for animals, for even the planet that we live on itself. Guess what, folks? Things are not getting better. They're getting worse. And they're going to continue to get worse. And we see that the dreadful last days bring about many wars and governments against governments. And Jesus even quotes from Isaiah 11 in, in, in verse uh, uh, 24 and 25 when he says, The sun will be darkened and whole heavens, the whole heavens will be shaken. There will be so much unrest on the planet that nothing of what we consider to be civilization survives. It all fails. It is all shaken. And he says the last days will bring about the rise of many false teachers and false Christs and delusions and lies that tempt faithful people away from God and his truth. And it's not like those false prophets offer nothing. In verse 22, Jesus says that some of these false teachers will even produce signs and wonders. 
that will deceive even the most faithful of Jesus' followers. But, there's that big word again, but because Jesus is in control, he knows all this ahead of time, that all this will happen, and he wants those of us who follow him to understand the one overarching magnificent truth. He is coming back. There is no more important fact for the believer than to understand that Jesus is coming back. In the midst of those terrible days, Jesus makes this magnificent promise. Let's look at verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. Isn't that a powerful picture? Jesus knows the death and destruction that will come to this world and not just for one brief time period. You see, death and destruction are hallmarks of this decaying world in which we live. That is the normal order of progression. But the good news is that Jesus tells all believers that whether we are alive or dead, that when he comes again, he will collect those who are faithful to him with power and with glory, and he will take us to be with him. And he wants us to be as prepared as we can be. In fact, at the end of this passage, he gives us several command statements. These are not options, folks. These are Jesus speaking to his disciples, recorded by the apostles, written in Scripture for us today as well. In verse 33, he says, be on guard. In verse 30, 34, he says, stay awake. Wake up, people. And he says it again in verse 35. Stay awake. And then finally in verse 37. And what I say to you, disciples, I say to all. Stay awake. Wake up. Why do you think Jesus has to repeat that time and time and time again? Stay awake. Because our tendency is to nod off. Our tendency is to get comfortable, to snuggle into the bed, right? Pretty good here in this world. Let's face it, there's some good things in this world that we live in, right? Right? We have families that we love. We have a beautiful nature that we can spend time in. There are good things in this world. But even those good things are destined for destruction because God has something so much better. So much better that it's mind-blowing that when the Apostle John saw it and wrote about it in the book of Revelation, he couldn't even write it all down. He had to use all kinds of weird imagery because he, he, couldn't, he couldn't convey it in normal words. God has something so great for us. We must stay awake. Notice that Jesus is promising that in the last days, he will come for us. He will come, and our job is to be ready when he does. And we don't know when that time is but we will have assurance and strength from our faith in Jesus and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to endure in faithfulness anything this world throws at us. 
That is Jesus' promise. The Holy Spirit enables us to endure through to the end so that we can be saved. The Holy Spirit encourages us to be faithful, to stick with it, which leads to our ultimate salvation. What a wonderful promise, amen? amen. There is no better promise. In Timothy Keller's book, The Prodigal Planet, he wrote about an old fairy tale, about a wicked witch who lived in a, in a remote cottage deep in the forest. And when travelers came through looking for lodging, she offered them a meal in a bed, and it was the most wonderfully comfortable bed any of them had ever slept in. But it was a bed full of deep magic, and if you were asleep in it when the sun came up, you would turn to stone. Then you became a figure in the witch's statuary, trapped until the end of time. The witch forced a young girl to serve her. And though this young girl had no power to resist the witch, the girl had become more and more filled with pity for her victims. One day, a, a young man came looking for a bed and boarding, and he was taken in. And the servant girl could not bear to see him turn to stone. And so she went in to the bed and she threw sticks and stones and thistles into the bedding. And it made the bed horribly uncomfortable. And every time he turned, he felt a, a new painful object under him. And though he cast each one out as he found it through the night, there was always another one to dig into his body, into his flesh. And so he slept in fits and he, he rose the next morning feeling weary and worn, long before dawn. And so as he walked out the front door, the servant girl met him and he berated her cruelly. How could you give such a traveler such a terrible bed full of sticks and stones? He yelled at her and he went on his way. Ah, she said under her breath, the misery you know now is nothing like the infinitely greater misery a comfortable sleep would have brought upon you. Those were my sticks and stones of love. Well, Mr. Keller continues. He says, God put sticks and stones of love in our bed to wake us up, to bring us to rely on him, lest the end of history or the end of our life overtake us without the Lord in our heart. That is the God that we serve, friends whether it is in our present days or in our future days or in the last days, whenever those might be, the Lord remains at work. He remains in control. And his greatest desire is that you and I and everyone that we know would come to know him as Savior and Lord and Redeemer. And so may we live faithfully. May we stay awake and prepared, and may we rely fully on him through all our days, however many those might be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the wonder of your promises. God, we pray that we would be people who are awake and alert. Lord, as we live in this world, that we would not succumb to the temptations of comfort but Lord, instead, that we would be prepared and ready for whatever you have for us. And Lord, I would pray that we might be a people of 
compassion and passion, Lord, as we see people around us that are perishing. Lord, let us not go on our own way, comfortable with our own position, but instead, Lord, may we extend hope and care to others that you bring into our life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us to do what we cannot do ourselves. And it is in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to share together in the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, this time of communion. And as we do, I want to just kind of give you a a send-off, a challenge. Really three challenges that you might meditate on, maybe not just now during the communion time, but also throughout this week as you think about serving the Lord. And the first one, the first challenge is this. Live out your faith. Live out your faith. Do you live more like the world than a follower of the Lord? The study of God's prophecies is always meant to have a purifying effect on His people. God wants us to be prepared, to be purified. That's one of the beautiful things about the communion time, the Lord's Supper, is that we can seek that purification once again. Be reminded of the power of the blood of Jesus that covers a multitude of sins. Live out your faith. Secondly, rearrange your priorities. The old evangelist D.L. Moody once said, I have been working three times as hard since I came to understand that my Lord is coming again. I love that statement. When Jesus returns... How do you want to be found? Do you want to be found lazy, laying in your bed? Do you want him to come back when you're nursing that grudge? Do you want him to return when there's friction and unforgiveness in your marriage or in another relationship in your life? Would you be okay if he returned when you were involved in that secret sin that you committed this past week? Let's Rearrange our priorities. Live out your faith. Rearrange your priorities. And finally, encourage one another. Encourage one another. After describing the last days to the Thessalonians, Paul concludes in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this way. He says, after he's, all he said, he says, therefore, therefore, based on everything I've just told you, therefore, encourage one another with these words. When we come together, it ought to be to be encouraged. To encourage means to come alongside someone and give him or her what they need in their time of crisis. And so I want to encourage you to encourage others this week. How do we encourage others? We encourage others by talking more about Jesus and more about his return than we do talking about the weather or sports or your job. Talk more about Jesus That's encouraging. Remind one another. Remind one another of the future hope that we have. And remind one another that that future hope is way better than the present troubles that we endure right now. So let's talk about what we have coming instead of what's going on now. And then finally, live with optimism. Live with optimism because of your confident expectation in the Lord Live with optimism instead of pessimism about the current state of affairs in this world. We are so easily distracted by all the junk. Turn off the news. 
Open your Bible. Rearrange your priorities. Live out your faith and encourage one another. That's our challenge for the week, all right? Things to meditate on as we share in the Lord's Supper together. We have four tables, two at the front, two at the back as Kathy plays. We just encourage you to quietly make your way to one of the tables. You can serve yourself at the table. You can take the bread and cup back to your seat and, and have it there if you'd like. If you have a hard time making it to one of the tables, just simply raise your hand. We've got some folks in the back that would come and serve you right where you're seated. But above all, let's make this a time of worship as we reflect on Jesus, who is in control and who has invited us out of this world of heartache and hardship. And he's given us a hope that is transcendent, that is superior, that is wonderful, and that belongs to his children. Let me pray, and then we'll share together. Father, bless our time of communion. Father, thank you that you give us this simple meal because our memories are short and you help us to reflect on the greatest price ever paid so that we might be free from the oppression and brokenness of sin, that we might be unbound from the slavery of sin and we might walk in freedom and joy and hope all because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Spirit, that you live with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Let's share the communion together.